Open up in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. As you probably noticed, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is about money. Uh, We are in a little season here, uh, the post-Easter season, where, uh, like the songs we were just singing, which were just a wonderful uh, kind of resurrection, Easter follow-up, uh, we're in this season where we're remembering that our Lord is the, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on, and on earth belongs. And we are his people following him in this, this wonderful work of spreading the knowledge of the glory of the Lord over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so, as we do that, the Lord has landed us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is... Uh, really trying to harness his Corinthian church to join him in the apostolic work that we're still playing out here, but the work that he's doing, uh, he and his missionary apostolic band. And it involves money. So let's talk a little bit about money before we talk a little bit more about money. Jesus says in Matthew six twenty four that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. What is the primary master that people serve other than God? Not Satan, right? Nobody, very few people, some people think they want to serve Satan. If they met him, they wouldn't. Nobody wants to serve Satan. And so Jesus helpfully surfaces the real competition for faith. They say you can have faith in money, you can have faith in me. Because faith in money functions like faith in Jesus. It helps calm our fears about the future. Oh, it'll be okay, I have money. It helps heal wounds that we brought into the present. Right? That, you know what, I, I'm healed from that because now I've got money. And it gives us joy in the present. Hey, today's a great day, we've got money! Right? It, it functions in almost identical ways. And it is a very powerful force in our life. Scripture is very clear on this. Jesus says just a few verses before, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. Like if, if we're a religion of the heart, not appearances and not form and not fake heart stuff, where your treasure is is where your heart's going to be. That's really, it's a powerful thing. Uh, he says in Matthew 13, 22, in the parable of the sower, he uses this expression here. He says, uh, what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, the gospel of the good news of Jesus, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Right, so the deceitfulness, riches are deceitful and they are deceitful with the aim to choke out the word of God and its effectiveness in our life. Paul describes this in 1 Timothy 6. He says, If we have food and clothing, we should be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Holy smokes. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, many sorrows. It's a It can be a powerfully destructive force in people's life. And so because of its its power and and yet the fact that, right, we all have to use it, 
We all have to benefit from it. You can say, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have any money. I'm not going to own anything, but still somebody's going to be buying your lunch, right? So we're just embedded in a world of it. So it's going to be a very important aspect of discipleship. Jesus in his classic, in his kind of foundational discipleship call, he exposes the, the tension between the lordship of money and the lordship of Christ. He says, what is it going to profit you if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? He's offering an opportunity to, to save your life, to, to gain your soul, and the competition is trying to get everything that's in the world. But since Jesus means to be the master of everything in our life, this is going to include money, right? Let that sink in for just a moment. This is a very powerful force. It's a very competitive force against Christ. And yet Christ, as he exerts his lordship over our lives, as we more and more become his disciples, this is going to be one of the big areas of struggle. But Jesus says, to his disciples, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. And that's the call of discipleship. Lose your life for the sake of Christ. What's your life? It's my wallet. It's my calendar. It's my car and my home and my family and my work. My, it's everything. Give it all over to Jesus. So Jesus wants to be Lord of our finances. This is a very challenging, very difficult subject for every single one of us. So it's very interesting to me, as we come into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that Paul never uses any of the words for money. In his longest conversation about fundraising, he, there's, there's words in Greek for money. He doesn't use any of them. He never mentions it. Isn't that interesting? I mean, his main point is, please get the money that you promised ready for when I show up. I mean, that's what the, these chapters are about. Please have the money ready, that, the money that you promised, please have it ready for when I show up. But he never says money. He never says money. He says this act of grace, this gift, this ministry, right? He sounds like a pastor here all dancing around it. Perhaps, perhaps he wants to help us think differently about money. Another really interesting thing about these chapters is that he never actually, uh, though we know from other places in Paul's writings that this was meant to be a kind of a, uh, kind of a symbolic peace gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem, sort of like, a, hey, the, the Gentile church remembers you and, and we're all kind of together in this. So it's this sort of token gift uh, for the poor in Jerusalem. Paul never talks about the need. Right, if somebody came in here and they're trying to raise money for something, what would, they, what would the, the number one thing that they would want to do, right? Put up pictures. When I was in high, when I was in high school, I was a, a paper boy, and, and Sunday mornings I'd be up at 6 o'clock in the morning folding papers and trying to, you know, watch what's on TV. And uh, it was a, there was always a Feed the Children uh, infomercial. So it was just 30 minutes of, you know, uh, People in children in dire circumstances with distended bellies, covered in flies, you know, and just string, soft string music playing. And come on, just give, right? And Paul never talks about the need. He never describes 
the need. So just as perhaps he wants to help us think about money differently, perhaps he also wants to help us understand better reasons to be generous. Right, how many of you have uh, need fatigue? Right, your inbox is always overloaded with appeals for this other amazing opportunity, this horrible situation, and, and just give, and we've got an op- just text to this number, and whoa, we've got a matching donor, and it's just all oh, this need. The world is just wall-to-wall need. Maybe there's a better reason to be generous. So, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is really built around answering two questions. How do we talk about money? And how does money talk about us? How do we talk about money? And how does money talk about us? So let's take the first one. How do, how do we talk about money? And one of the most interesting features of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is an unusual density of the word grace. In fact, this little chapter has more uses of the word grace than any other chapter in the whole Bible. More uses and higher density. This is the most dense grace location in all scripture, in terms of vocabulary. And as I mapped out the the usages of grace here, I found kind of five links, five steps that each is called grace by Paul. And the first of this is the grace of Jesus. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says here, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here's this little, this beautiful, I mean classic, iconic gospel moment that summarizes all that Christ is, and all that he did, and all that we get as a result. And and we love this, right? We love this grace. So the first step is that God is gracious to us, that Jesus has been gracious to us. But then there's another thing of grace. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So there's, a, there's an extra experience of grace here, that the spirit of grace is now stirring up the Macedonian church. In verse 10 of chapter 8, Paul says, In this matter I give my judgment, and this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to desire to do it. This same work of grace that we see in the that Paul points out in the Macedonian church is also at work in the Corinthian church, also called a Ki church here. That's the Corinthian church too, same church. So this extra grace, this this gift of wanting to give and actually beginning to do it. And then if you look at chapter eight, verse six, uh, we see that there's. Uh, The gift is grace. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. At the end of verse 7, you see, he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Jesus is grace. The Spirit's working grace. The gift itself is grace. And then there's a grace spirit, lower S spirit here, a spirit of generosity, a giving spirit. In verse 2 of chapter 8, he says, They had this grace of God given among them, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is 
more grace, a, gra- a gracious gift given with a gracious spirit. Of course, it's possible to give a generous gift with a bad attitude or with a you know, see what I did kind of a spirit. And that's not what they had. They had a generous spirit. That's also grace. And then, kind of the last place grace appears is in the result. Uh, so for this, we'd have to go to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which is sort of where the result of all this is. Paul says, You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And that, that word thanksgiving is, the, is built off the same root as, as the word grace. So just, and you can see that in English, grace and gratitude, related words. Verse 12, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So gratitude is the result, not just gratitude. I want to show you another interesting link here. Uh, let's start in chapter 9, verse 2, if you're, if you're there. Paul says, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's Corinth, has been ready since last year. Your zeal stirred up most of them. Now when you think back to chapter 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to them. God gave that grace to them in part through the zeal of the Corinthians. So as the Corinthians were getting excited about doing this grace with a gracious spirit, getting this grace ready, that produced more generosity in the Macedonian church. So there's this whole sequence of grace. The grace of our Lord, the grace of the Spirit, the gracious gift, the gracious attitude, and then the, the gratitude and the generosity that results. All right. How does Paul talk about money? He kind of doesn't. He really doesn't talk about money. He talks about... I thought there was another slide there. He talks about grace. He doesn't talk about money. He talks about grace. What matters is grace. What matters about money is how it relates to grace. That's why he doesn't talk about money. Because he wants everything, he wants all of their attention to be on the grace that they've received and the grace that they get to be a part of spreading. This is uh, how we should think about grace. How we should think about money, according to 2 Corinthians 8. It's grace, grease. It's grace, grease. Here's what that means. First of all, money giving comes from grace. Giving money comes as a result of grace. So all the grace, the grace of Jesus in the gospel and the grace of the Spirit in our lives frees us to be able to give. Generosity comes from the grace of Jesus. There's this extra grace so that they want to give, so that they do give, so that they give generously with good attitudes. All of that is the result of God at work in their lives. So this, this grace grease, right? It, it's grace that comes to grease our ability to give. And then the second way is, of course, money given to us 
is meant for grace. That we want to give, we want to further the spread of the good news of the grace of God in Christ. This is a, a, a line from chapter 4 where Paul talks about we're going to extend grace. We're going to push out the boundaries of, of who knows about the grace of God poured out in Jesus. So money, as he talks about here, becomes this act of grace, this ministry of grace given with a gracious spirit in order to extend grace and produce gratitude and, to God and, and generosity in others. So how should we talk about money? Money is grace grease. That's what it is. Get it in there and lubricate the flow of the good news of Jesus to the ends of the world. And get it in here and open your lives up to this grace and to what God wants to do. We often say, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? This old uh, kind of King James translation of one of the Psalms, and we sing that. He owns the cattle on a thousand, it's all his. And what is he doing with it? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills so that the earth might be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. So how do we talk about money? We need to talk about grace. Here's the second question is how do we talk about money? How does money talk about us? Now look with me here, chapter 8, verse 7. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, he's just sort of being cute there, like he's saying we love you so much, uh, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Prove that your love is genuine by being gracious, because... That's what Jesus did. That's how generosity becomes proof of our attachment to Jesus. And then let's go now to the end of chapter 8. Again, Paul says, Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. I think this, is a, this hits on now part of this passage that's always bothered me. And this passage is really built around uh, four chunks for our Wednesday Bible study group. You know, we like to separate out the, the big chunks there. It, the first part is verses 1 to 7 of chapter 8. 
And kind of the point of the opening part of this passage is Paul saying, wow, the Macedonians are so great. Why don't you guys be like them? I mean, that's, that's what he says. He, he boasts about them, and then he says, hey, I want you to excel in grace as well. I want you to do this as well. Now, how would you feel if I came here one Sunday and was like, you know what, I just saw this, you know, this big Lutheran church is getting built, or this great old Catholic church. Oh, boy, I just think all the grace that was given to those people to give to that project. Why don't we do that? You'd be like, I hate this guy. <laughs> this guy's the worst, right? I, I can't get around. I mean, Paul's really nice about it, but like that's what he's doing. He said, oh, the Macedonian church, man, they gave so much. And we were like, stop giving, please. Why don't you guys do that? The next big section, uh, verses 8 to 15, uh, Paul, he explains the personal benefit of this for the Corinthians. But now the next big section is 16 to 24. This is probably the part of Kyle's reading that you uh, begin to think about what you're having for lunch. Because this is the part where uh, he's talking about how Titus is going to visit him and the other brother. And you kind of feel like he's like winking kind of. I, we don't know who the other brother is exactly. But the other brother who's known to all the churches and then another brother and then, and then we're going to come and visit you. The point of which is... Verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. I mean, what is Paul saying? He's saying, these guys, we're getting all these guys together. They're coming. They're, they're just so excited to see what you've done with this project. You know, again, think about how you would feel if I'm like, hey, we've got some missionary friends coming. I've been telling them uh, just how great of a church this is, how much, I, I, you know, God is at work here and we're working for this project and they're going to come and in six months they're, they're going to inspect everything and they're really excited about seeing what God has done through your generosity here. You'd be like, ugh. And then he adds to it the last five verses in chapter nine, verses one to five, which is very plainly put, Paul saying, please don't embarrass me or yourselves. I've been telling them that you guys are so generous and that you promised this money and please don't embarrass me. What is Paul doing? I mean, this just feels weird. Is he just laying guilt on? This is the apostle of grace. This is the highest density point of grace in all scripture. And it's used to make people feel guilty or ashamed. What is happening here? And what Paul is doing in this marvelously subtle way. I mean, he's emphasizing that this is all free grace, cheerful, not an exaction, but he's, he's surfacing two interconnected truths that have to do with money. And the first is that there is a very deep connection between what we claim for our faith and what we do with our money. We've kind of already talked about this a little bit. But there's a very deep connection between what we claim for our faith. Oh, I'm really religious. I really love Jesus, Right? But then, what do we do with our money? Does our money habits look exactly like people who don't love Jesus? Don't know Jesus? There's a deep connection here. This is why Paul says in verse 8 and in verse 24, he says, prove yourself. He says, prove. In verse 8, prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. In verse 24, he says, give proof before the churches 
of your love and of our boasting about you give proof of our assessment of your faith. We've been saying that you're a really strong church. Give proof of this. And the question is, do we have, does the Corinthian church have a real connection to the Jesus who was rich but became poor for your sake? Do we have a real connection to that Jesus? And if so, Corinthians, if so, excel, excel in giving, in this giving project. That's the first big thing that Paul wants to surface. That there's a deep connection between what we claim for our faith and what we do with our money. And here's really the rub. And everybody can, everyone can see what you're doing with your money. I mean, when you read this chapter, you cannot avoid a sense of rising uh, pressure, maybe too strong a word, accountability. Give proof before the churches. Now Jesus says, hang on Paul, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. And when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Do not give to be seen by other people. Amen. I think Paul's just saying, but they can see. Meaning, we can't pretend. Don't give to be seen by others, but let's not pretend that people can't see our values, our commitments, played out in our finances. Now, Paul has said here that he doesn't want them to be humiliated. He said previously that he doesn't want the grace of God to come to them in vain. But it's possible, isn't it? It's possible that the Macedonian cohort comes with Paul, that these other guys weren't able to get everything ready, and... Paul's going to be talking up the Corinthian church and they're going to show up and they're going to be scrambling and not ready. And there's going to be a really awkward pause at whatever part of the church service. And now we're bringing out the gift. And, oh, well, hey, Paul, quick. Right? Embarrassment is a real possibility. Receiving the grace of God in vain is a real possibility. Because this is where our values and our commitments are on display. So Paul's just saying... Don't give to be seen by other people. Don't give for their applause and their praise. But let's not pretend that nobody can see. So, how do we talk about money? It's meant to serve grace. How does money talk about us? It talks about our faith. It talks about our faith. What does it say? What does our, our money say about us and our faith? about our understanding of the gospel of grace, about our love for Jesus and for his church. Right? There's a deep relation between my generosity and my faith. All right, so that's what Paul is laying out here for the Corinthian church. How should we uh, apply this? He's got a very specific application in mind. Again, please have the money that you promised ready for when I come. But I think there's a couple real basic general really difficult principles here for us as well. And let's look at chapter 8, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 7. So Paul praises the Macedonian church 
And here's why they gave. Here's why they're so praiseworthy here. He says, they did all this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves to Christ and then to the servants of Christ. So this, is a, this raises a, one way to talk about this, the, the faith question. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you have enough faith to entrust your money to him? Do you have enough faith in Jesus so that if he tells you to entrust your money to those guys, you're going to do that? Hang on. Here's another way to say it. The real question, the faith question, is will you receive the gift of Jesus' leadership in your life? The gift of his wisdom, the gift of his guidance, the gift of the Spirit's illumination. Will you receive those gifts if they're given through your church leaders? Like, I trust Jesus with everything. How much do I trust Brian and Tony? With everything? Ugh, all of a sudden it gets a little more complicated, doesn't it? I trust Jesus absolutely. Wait, he wants how much? He wants me to give it to who? Hmm. This is going to take some prayer and fasting. It's a challenge. This is the root of their, their generosity. They gave themselves to Jesus. They said, Jesus, you're our leader. Jesus, you're our master. Jesus, you tell us what to do. And then, as they gave themselves to Jesus, Jesus is like, sweet, I want you to go help those guys out. They so much gave themselves to Jesus that that wasn't a problem. That's hard, though. That's a big problem for a lot of people. So that's the beginning. Give ourselves to Jesus and then to us. And then in verse 7, Paul says, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what is faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, excelling in those things? Those are all gifts from God. Those are all gifts of the Spirit to the Corinthian church. He's saying as you love those gifts, as you love to exercise those gifts, exercise this gift as well. What gift? The gift of being generous. The gift of giving to this opportunity. Here's what this means. Giving is a gift from God. Those are weird words to hear together, so think about that for a second. Giving, the act of giving, when I give, that is something I do because God lets me. God gives to me the ability, the desire, the strength to give. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, do you want all of God's gifts? Do you want more Bible knowledge? Oh yeah, right? Do you want more, uh, to be a better talker, more speech, giftings? Absolutely, better communicator. Do you want to be more earnest and more sincere and passionate for the work of Jesus? Absolutely, great. You want all those gifts? Do you want this gift? This is another gift of God. If you want all the graces of God, this is one of them. Giving is one of the gifts. So if you want this gift more, what do you have to do? Give more. 
Give yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to his church and give more. Those are kind of the basic principles here for us from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So what is money? Money is grace, grease. And what is giving? Giving is a gift. It is, and here's why. Being generous joins us to God's heart. The God from whom every good and every perfect gift comes. This is the essential character of our God, is his generosity. Giving joins us to his heart. You think about what greater gift can God give us, his people, than to bring us into what's on his heart for us. What's on his mind? What is his plan? And what are his hands busy with? He wants to bring us into that. So yes, giving gives a gift, but really, generosity is a gift. And that's the main point of these chapters. So let's pray. And then we'll move towards the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this morning for your grace. We're so thankful that our our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect embodiment of your glory, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. And that is your heart. That is your character. So that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. That Jesus set aside all of his privileges, set aside all of his position, and came and served us so that we might be brought up, as we talked about last week, into the household of God and enjoy all the benefits that come to Christ deservedly, we get for free as grace. And Father, we're gathered here fundamentally because we love the grace that we see in Jesus. And you don't see grace like this. We don't see anything like this anywhere else in the world. And so we want to we wanna be his We want to belong to Jesus. We want to be his people. To be gracious like he is gracious. Generous like you are generous, Father. And so we ask now, as you have richly given us grace in Jesus, that you would also give us grace by your Spirit. That you would lead us and guide us towards giving to being generous to the people in our lives, uh, to using the money that you've given us to further, to, to help other people see the grace of God in Christ as well. And so we ask all this now, in Jesus' name, amen.